Welcome to episode five of the High Adventure Podcast, where we're telling the story of the 1977 Yosemite pot plane crash. If you're new to us, you might want to go back and listen to the previous episodes to help you get up to speed as to where we are in the story. I formatted this episode a little differently. I'm not going to interrupt the story with a break in the middle as we've done in the past. I'm always tinkering with things and hopefully for the better, but as I work here in my office doing these things, I don't really know if they work until you, the listener, let me know. A boomer's tricks in a woman's What would you do if you discovered a plane crash? Would your answer be different if the plane you found contained 6,000 pounds of marijuana? In 1977, some people had to make that decision. My name is Jeff Vargin, and this is the High Adventure Podcast. In this episode, we're going to continue to discuss the covert retrieval operation by the rock climbing community... And the expansion of that recovery is word got out beyond Yosemite and the climbers of Camp 4. And then there's the Black Book. And then there's Jack Dorn. And then there's Eddie Masoy. One was highly sought after, one was dispatched, and one was altered forever. But before we jump into this week's story, I want to thank you all again who have found us on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram. It's encouraging to receive a message and emails about the podcast and Anytime you launch a new project, whether it's a film or a piece of writing or a podcast, you never really know if there will be an audience out there. I started this podcast not knowing if I'd have any listeners beyond a couple of friends and some family members, but you do hope there will be an audience. And the compensation for me on this project is that you are out there and around the world and listening to this story. The kind words I've been receiving about the show are my reward. I'm really enjoying bringing you this story and doing it in this format and looking forward to additional seasons and bringing you stories that you may not have heard before. One of the things I've always loved about spending time in the mountains was sitting around a campfire with a group of people at the end of the day sharing stories. And that's what I feel we're all doing here in a metaphorical way. And I hope you're having a similar experience. And our metaphorical campfire circle is expanding. I have access to the statistics identifying the location of listeners. I have no way of knowing who you are. But I know what city and country you're listening from. And this week we've gained a lot of new listeners. As I've mentioned in previous episodes, most of our listeners are here in the United States. And that's closely followed by New Zealand and the UK, France, India... 
We also have listeners this week from Tanzania, Singapore, Lebanon, and the Czech Republic. Here in the U.S., we have listeners from Boston and Shreveport, Louisiana, Birmingham, Alabama, and Tulsa, Oklahoma, Los Angeles, California, and West Palm Beach, Florida. And each week, the audience continues to grow. So thank you all who have written reviews and shared the podcast with their friends around the world. Keep sharing and please keep spreading the word. Let's get into it and quickly review the timeline of the story. December 9th, 1976. The plane crashes in Lower Merced Pass Lake. Six weeks later in mid-January, the plane is found and the crash is reported to authorities. Five governmental agencies descend on Yosemite and the lake to survey the crash site and begin salvage operations. It's known that 6,000 pounds of marijuana were on the plane along with two pilots, both of who are presumed dead, though no bodies were recovered due to the extreme conditions and the location and condition of the plane when they found it. The government recovered and removed almost 2,000 pounds of marijuana from the crash site. On February 4, 1977, a storm came in and all government personnel left the site. Because of the extreme conditions and the location, they figured the site would remain as they left it. After all, who really would be willing to hike 26 miles from the valley in winter to this remote and almost unknown location? Well, it turns out quite a few people would be willing. After the storm cleared and the trails became a bit more passable, climbers and Yosemite Valley locals, upon learning the site was abandoned, began their pilgrimage and the green rush was on. It was no secret to what was on the plane. Yosemite Valley is a small community and everybody knows everyone and everyone knows everyone's business, as they say. In fact, some of the weed had already found its way into Camp 4 and into employee tents, thanks to a few rangers who had brought a sizable sample of the weed back to the valley themselves and shared it with their friends. The trips to the lake and the crash site began by mid to late February and continued through March and into April. In the first month, it was mostly climbers and locals. There were about 100 people who'd hiked that 26 miles. Some of these people made up to three trips, and perhaps a couple people made more than that. In each trip, they were bringing back at least one 40-pound bundle of weed. But remember, that weed is saturated with lake water and jet fuel, and the weight had ballooned to almost 80 pounds per bundle. And that's what they had to carry the 26 miles back to the valley. The street price of a bundle was around $96,000, but these guys really weren't going to get anything close to this for this wet and somewhat mushy weed, but they were all going to do pretty well. When Eddie Masoy, Jack Dorn, and a few others made a trip up to the plane, they thought they'd get a little weed, have a nice adventure, and all would be good. They got a ride up the Glacier Point Road and hiked in from the higher elevation. This would cut their hike by a few miles, but they were going to have to hike the full 26 miles back to the valley when they salvaged their stash. Eddie was 18. He had recently arrived in Yosemite Valley with the idea of becoming a full-time climber. He had a dream of climbing El Capitan, like many young climbers do, but the first step in Eddie's mind was to move to Yosemite, learn from the best climbers in the world in the greatest climbing location on Earth. So in January of 1977, after convincing his parents that this was the life he wanted to lead, they drove him to Yosemite and dropped him off, and his adventure began. Before anyone tries to pass judgment on Eddie's parents for leaving him in Yosemite, Eddie was not alone here. Yosemite was full of young people. Some had come to climb, some had come to hike, 
Some had come to work in the hundreds of service jobs at the restaurants and hotels within the park. Those of us who grew up in the outdoors or spent a lot of time there as young people were as comfortable in the wilderness as we were in any city park. Okay, here we go. I'll tell you a little story about myself and what my parents did for me when I was a kid. Most of you are familiar with Half Dome. Half Dome is the iconic symbol of Yosemite. It dominates the landscape at the east end of the valley. It sits above Mirror Lake and across from Glacier Point. Sometimes as many as two dozen photographers, both pro and amateur, congregate on the valley's Sentinel Bridge in the evening to try to get that magical postcard-worthy photograph of it when the sun hits Half Dome just right, kind of late in the evening. The sun rises behind Half Dome and sets with the last rays of the day hitting the face like a spotlight hitting a star on a stage. It's the image of the Yosemite logo. Got it? It's, it's a big thing, and the image is Yosemite for most people. Its face from base to summit is 3,000 feet. But Half Dome sits atop its own rock formation, which is kind of like a perch. So upon its perch, its summit sits 4,800 feet above the valley floor, and the total elevation is 8,839 feet. It's high. It's big. It has its own weather up there. It's a big deal, and it's a very, very high place, and it's an amazing location. Now, Half Dome was first climbed by a guy named George Anderson in 1875. Good old George is buried in Yosemite Valley Cemetery, and that's kind of located behind the Yosemite Village Visitor Center. The route George took ascends the east side up a long, steep, and smooth face. Today you can hike the eight miles from the valley to the top of Half Dome, ascending a route very near George's original climb that used two hand cables to help you pull yourself up the final 400 feet to the summit. Now these are not quite like the Via Ferrata like you might find in the Dolomites or some other mountains in Europe. These are more like cable handrails. The cables were put up originally in 1919. Millions of people have done this hike over the years. These days it's so popular you have to enter a lottery system to get a permit to do the hike. In a way, it's a way to limit the people and the potential danger, but there's just still hundreds and hundreds of people that get up there every single day. But the people have to hike eight miles up a very hard trail, and the last 400 feet is on slippery rock that you're hanging on to these metal cables that keep yourself from falling down the mountainside. It's become a huge attraction for tourists, with hundreds of people ascending each day. But in late August 1977, yes, the same year as the plane crash, I did my hike to the top of Half Dome. I was 16 years old, and I told my mom I wanted to do the Half Dome hike, and that I wanted to do it alone. She and my dad were camping up in the Tuolumne Meadows region of the park at the time, and I decided I would do the hike over two days. Leg one, I'd hike up to a small backpacker's campground about two miles below the summit, and on day two, I'd get up early and hike to the summit and then make my way back to the valley floor. I'd had some experience in the outdoors, but I had not really been backpacking before. I'd never been by myself, but what could happen, right? My mom never questioned my decision or my plan or that I would be going alone. No one I had ever known had done this hike, and back in those days, there were a lot fewer people doing this hike, so it was kind of a solitary thing no matter if you were alone or with other people you didn't see a lot of people too far up that trail i had no idea what i was facing 
But that wasn't a concern for me or my parents. So I packed an old backpack with a sleeping bag and a few snacks and a bit of water, and off I went. I made it to the backpacker's campground in what's called Little Yosemite Valley and found a place to roll out my bag and spend the night. After I was kind of settled in, early in the evening, a group of about six guys rolled in. They didn't seem like hikers. They actually seemed more like bikers. They were tough-looking guys, but tough-looking city guys. They didn't really seem like they were the outdoor wilderness tough types. This area of the park is very active with bears, and you're warned about that before you go up there. But these are California black bears, and they're not really aggressive towards people unless they're provoked. And they're, for the most part, vegetarians. I've never worried about bears in Yosemite. I've seen dozens and dozens of them and have never had any trouble. Rattlesnakes, however, yeah, I've had some problems, and that's a whole other story for a whole other podcast, but let's stay to where we are right now. In those days, they didn't have the bear-proof canisters that backpackers carry today. In those days, you put your food in a small stuff sack and tied a rope at the end, and you tossed it over a limb of a tree. You tied one end to a log or a rock on the ground and kind of hung your food over the branch, and it would hang, you know, 12, 13 feet high, and ideally just out of the bear's reach. So after I had eaten my evening meal of who knows what it was, I did exactly that, and all was good. And the bikers were camped about 30 yards from me, and they were starting to settle in, which means they'd start a campfire and were drinking. They had virtually no gear, but they'd brought some food and a whole lot of alcohol. And midway in the evening, I saw a guy throwing a loaf of bread up in a tree, and he tossed it up, and it came down, and he tossed it up again, and it came back down, and he did this maybe for 10 minutes. And I assumed he was trying to keep it from the bears, so I walked over and asked him if he wanted to put that bread in my hanging stuff sack to keep it safe. And he told me, no, 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 no. He was trying to get the bread up in the tree because he wanted to see a bear climb a tree and he wanted to watch that bear eat his bread up in the tree. Okay, then. Good luck with that. These guys were really nice guys, actually, but they were way out of their element. It wasn't like I was a seasoned veteran, but I had a little more sense of the outdoors than these guys. So night falls, and the bikers had, for the most part, drank themselves to sleep. In the middle of the night, I woke up to some grunting sounds, and I looked across my campsite, and about 10 feet away, there was a large bear that was kicking around my empty backpack, and he wasn't going to find anything in it because it was all safely up in the stuff sack. He quickly figured out there was nothing inside the pack that he wanted, and uh, now he was turning towards me. Okay, I, I was a bit scared at this point. There's no denying it. Because all of a sudden, this big bear, who's sort of drooling and sort of panting and grunting, is turning and walking towards me. And I just froze in my sleeping bag, and I closed my eyes. I didn't even breathe, I don't think. And as he turned and came towards me, I could hear each of his panting breaths and each of his steps as they crushed the leaves and the dry pine needles under each paw. They're getting closer and closer. And pretty soon I could smell that musty fur. I somehow managed the courage to open my eyes, but at that point all I saw was fur as he was very gracefully and very carefully stepping over my face and chest as he walked on and into the biker's campsite. At their campsite, 
It was a different story. It was a buffet. He found exactly what he was looking for. The bikers didn't do a very good job of cleaning up the scraps of food they left over from having their open fire cookout. They just kind of left everything out and passed out. Well, the sound of the bear snorting and rustling around and eating their scraps woke the bikers up. And I'm not sure a rival biker gang would have been too intimidated by the high-pitched screams that came from those guys on that night. So the next morning, I got up early and hiked the last two miles or so to the summit, and that included the 400-foot cable section. I was alone on the trail all the way to the cables, and I was alone on the cables, and I got to the summit and found myself alone up there as well. And there's a point that sticks out over the face of Half Dome called the diving board. I walked out on this section of rock, stood at the edge, and looked down. And then I sat down, my feet dangling over the edge of this 3,000-foot face and looked for a long, long time at Yosemite Valley. From that high up, you can see almost the entire park, from the valley to the deep backcountry in all directions. It was an amazing experience. And after about a half hour of just looking and another half hour of wandering around the summit just to check things out, I made my way back down to camp and collected my gear and the bikers had gone already, and then I headed back down to the valley. And here it is over 40 years later, I remember it like it was yesterday, and that was a gift that my parents gave to me that has lasted a lifetime. Eddie Masoy's parents had given him that same gift about six months earlier, the trust and belief that he'd be fine and that he would begin his path into adulthood in this natural cathedral called Yosemite was truly something that I'm not sure a lot of parents did then, and I don't think many parents do now, but I would encourage you to put your kids out there. Give them an opportunity to explore, to expand, to trust, and to see things in a different way without you. So another tangent that I went off on, and if you've listened to the other episodes of this podcast, it seems like that happens once or twice every episode, but I promise I'll try to get back to this story. So it's late March, and Eddie, along with some other guys... And a guy named Jack Dorn made their way to the crash site. Now, the site had been visited by a lot of people by this time. And when they got there, there was a lot of holes punched in the lake. So they were just kind of going to look around and see what they could find. Spring was coming and the temps were slightly higher during the day, but still bitterly cold at night. The snow and ice was beginning to melt and more of the plane's pieces were becoming visible that had been previously covered by that snow and ice. So walking toward the lake to try to fish out their share of the cargo, Jack noticed a small piece of fabric sticking up out of the snow and ice near the nose cone of the submerged plane. Remember, the nose cone had become detached from the plane and was sticking straight up out of the ice, kind of like an igloo. Digging around the cloth a bit, they discovered it was a down jacket, and it seemed to be in pretty good shape. And when you're living on a meager existence and you find a nice jacket that's never going to be used again by its owner because the owners are dead, you're going to have a go at getting that thing out and taking it with you. So clearing the snow and ice, they uncovered the pocket of the jacket, and inside the pocket, Jack pulled out a wallet and a small black book. But while digging, the jacket ripped, causing feathers to fly everywhere. So that was the end of the jacket, but not the wallet or the black book. The wallet contained $1,600 in $50 bills. $1,600 in 1977, that's about $6,800 in today's dollars. So it's a pretty nice find. This black book is the basis for a lot of rumors and the root of a few conspiracy theories. 
It's impossible to know after 40 years exactly what the truth is, but we're going to get into that a bit later. For pilot John Gliske, carrying $1,600 in a small black book didn't seem out of the norm, but not a lot of people gave it a lot of thought. After all, 1600 bucks is not much compared to what they were making on these runs. But it was more than walking around money, too. John had been a helicopter pilot in Vietnam, and it was not uncommon at the time to carry cash in the aircraft in case of a crash or other problem that they might have to buy their way out of it. Uh, smuggling was a lot like combat flying. The aircraft might have to sit down in a remote area, or for any number of reasons, you might need some ready cash, either to buy silence or supplies, and uh, it was a normal, if not mandatory, precaution. Most likely gas and other legitimate expenses were paid for in cash as well. These were not weekend warriors here. John was an experienced and seasoned smuggler. After a couple days at the lake poking around through chainsawed holes, Eddie and Jack and their friends had retrieved a few bundles and headed back to the valley. They set out early one evening for the long 26-mile hike back. And spending the night along the trail in a long, cold night, they finally made their way back to the valley with these heavy, heavy loads. But these are tough guys. These are not city-tough bikers, but battle-tested wilderness-tough climbers. These guys are determined. When the guys got back to the valley, they went to the Wells Fargo Bank branch in Yosemite Village and deposited the cash. Eddie's girlfriend at the time was the teller, and she'd accepted the deposit. But things around the lake were already beginning to change. The locals who'd had interest in the cargo had all made a trip to the lake and somewhere on their second or third trip, but the neighborhood block party atmosphere was changing. As the weed was brought back, dried, and began to spread through Los Angeles and the San Francisco Bay Area and the rest of California, for that matter, it was only a matter of time before folks from all over California were going to come to Yosemite for their own piece of the green pie or whatever might be left. Estimates are there were about 500 people that made their way to the lake at some point. The original congenial group of 100 or so locals were mostly friends or friends of friends, but they were replaced by strangers who were not always friendly or kind. These were drug people, users, dealers, all looking for a quick score. Things were going to get out of hand very, very quickly. These were city-based weed adventurers with no real outdoor experience who might soon meet resistance from other salvagers, authorities, and toughest of all, the natural elements and challenges of wintertime high-altitude backcountry travel. This was an unsustainable situation that could not be ignored for long. Law enforcement in the park started to hear the stories of the large numbers of people now going to the lake. This is again where things in the story are happening in parallel. There's now lots of weed in the valley, held both by the authorities and the locals. Visitors are coming into the park who rangers recognize as not being nature lovers. Hikers who obviously had never hiked before and asking questions about remote regions that even experienced hikers rarely inquire about. Back in Camp 4, Jack Dorn still had the black book, but not for long. These pages of the book were damaged and somewhat smeared, and there's been a lot of discussion and speculation over the years as to the exact content of that book. Certainly there is a truth that exists, and maybe what I'm about to tell you is all completely true. And perhaps maybe only a portion of it is true. But these are the stories I've been told by the people who were actually there. 
but not all the stories were relayed by the same person, so everyone has their own slightly different version. The first story is the black book contained the names and phone numbers of contacts that were involved in the smuggling, or had business with the smugglers in some way. Seems plausible, but then again, why would John carry a book with him that contained incriminating information about so many people? That seems dangerous on a lot of levels. Again, John was not adverse to danger and bad decisions were not beyond him. Remember John not replacing that damaged oil line? Bad decision. Back in the valley, Jack Dorn gave the book to another climber. Now, once again, I'll remind you that the names of these people are not that relevant to the story so much as the actions that took place. Now, the Black Book is also said to have held several phone numbers, all with Washington, D.C. area codes. The plane nor the pilots had ever been linked to anyone in Washington, D.C. But here were those numbers, and a very eager DEA and U.S. Customs Service wanting to get a hold of that plane and the cargo. Why not just acknowledge that the plane had crashed and let the Park Service and FAA and NTSB handle the investigation and salvage? DEA and Customs were all over this site from the beginning, and the DEA had already acknowledged that they'd been watching John and his plane and had tracked and lost him several times. Does that seem reasonable? Maybe. Remember Pam Glisky had called the DEA to report her husband missing way back in late December? She had told the DEA everything she knew about John's smuggling operation, and she knew everything. But when the DEA called to notify her that they had found John's plane and that it had crashed, they did so in a phone call. In almost all situations when next of kin is notified of a tragedy, the family will often get a personal visit from a governmental agency. Pam was in Seattle. There are DEA and custom offices in Seattle, yet no one came to notify her in person. Could it be that they still hadn't found the bodies at that point? Perhaps, but his plane had gone down. He was most likely dead. They were pretty much saying he was dead, but nobody came to visit her. Stranger still, they didn't come to question Pam, who had told them everything about the smuggling operation. Could that be because they already knew everything she had to say? Maybe. So now we allegedly have Washington, D.C. numbers in the Black Book, DEA and Customs are very involved in the plane, but not too interested in the ancillary parties. If you've heard the name Barry Seal, then you're thinking the same thing I am. If you're not familiar with Barry Seal, there are a few podcasts and articles that tell that story. There's a movie, too, but it's admittedly fictionalized, and I wouldn't refer to that as a source. But in a nutshell, in the late 70s and early 80s, Barry Seal was a TWA pilot who gave up the civilian life for the life of a drug smuggler. He at one time amassed over $60 million from a smuggling operation that involved marijuana, cocaine, and guns. He was an independent smuggler who'd worked for Pablo Escobar and the Medellin drug cartel, and later, after he was caught, became an informant for the DEA. He then ran drugs for the Medellin cartel through Nicaragua and Honduras with the knowledge and assistance of the CIA as part of the Iran-Contra drugs for guns scandal. Barry Seal was machine gunned down and killed in front of a Salvation Army store that he'd been volunteering at in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. No one claimed credit for the murder, which is kind of a bit odd. Drug cartels often kidnap their victims and later make sure that the murder sends a clear and gruesome message to anyone who's going to go against them. Government and intelligence agencies around the world, on the other hand, will more likely do a quick, almost mob-style hit, very clean and very public. 
So does John Glisky's death fall into this gray area? Mob hit, drug cartel hit, government agency hit? That we'll never know. All this was happening at the same time John Glisky was flying marijuana from Mexico for an American syndicate with numbers in a book that supposedly had area codes for Washington, D.C. I'm not speculating or insinuating anything, but it's curious, don't you think? Now, the last story about the book is perhaps the most curious. I was told that the black book contained the names of investors in the smuggling operation, and most notably the names of Major League Baseball players from a Major League team in California. Seems unlikely, right? Well, let's look at the economics of Major League players at the time. The average salary of a Major League player in 1977 was $81,000. That's pretty good until you acknowledge that it is an average. The team in question in 1977 had 32 players on their active roster that season. 18 of the 32 were making $19,000 a year, or the league minimum. That's $85,000 in today's money. Not exactly multi-millionaire athletes of today's Major League Baseball. If a player had invested in one bundle of that cargo, they would have made more than five times their yearly salary on that one bundle. Now, does it seem unreasonable? The truth is, it's probably a lot more fun to speculate about what was in the book than to actually know. It seems Occam's razor could be in play here, which says, when presented with competing hypotheses that make the same predictions, one should select the solution with the fewest assumptions. That's another way of saying the truth can lie in the scenario that offers fewer assumptions of facts. What we know for sure is that the book changed hands in the valley. Jack Dorn had given it to another climber, and shortly after, a lawyer dressed in a suit quietly came into the valley. This was not the same lawyer who came representing Pam Glisky on a fact-finding mission about her husband. This lawyer came into the valley with one purpose, and that was to obtain the black book, which he did. The transaction took place in the Mountain Room Bar between two men who had exchanged very few words, but the handoff was in fact made. Was there money involved in the exchange? Perhaps. But the man in the book disappeared from the valley as stealthily as he had come in. So Jack Dorn had found the wallet and the book. He'd deposited the $1,600 into a bank account and passed the book on to an intermediary who then passed it on to a well-dressed lawyer. Jack Dorn was a well-respected climber and a member of Yosemite's elite search and rescue team known as SAR. Jack was known for his excellence as a SAR member and for his careful execution of rescues. Jack was also known for creating as safe an environment as possible for the other SAR members while they're involved in the dangerous work of rescuing climbers, hikers, and anyone who ran into trouble in Yosemite. On May 22nd, a few weeks after the book had been whisked out of the valley, Two climbers were caught in a rainstorm and got stuck and were becoming hypothermic while climbing a rock formation called Yosemite Point Buttress, which is just east of Yosemite Falls. The climbers were able to get word out that they needed help, and SAR went into action. It was 3.30 a.m. when SAR members headed up the Yosemite Falls Trail on their way to Yosemite Point. This was going to be a tough rescue. It was raining. It was 3.30 in the morning, and the team was going to have to hike seven-plus miles on very steep and tough trails before they could even begin to mount the rescue of the climbers. Everyone on the team was very experienced and had been up this trail many times, both during training exercises and for actual rescues. 
The SAR team hiked mostly together, but at some point Jack ended up in the rear of the team and had fallen back a bit, and another member went back to find him. Jack was gone. At some point on this hike, the 30-year-old Jack Dorn, expert climber, expert SAR member, seemingly slipped off the familiar trail and slid 400 feet to the rocks below where he seemingly died on impact. His body was retrieved the following morning. There are beliefs that it was an accident, and there are others that say that Jack had some help in slipping off that trail. Could Jack have been a victim of knowing too much about the Black Book? The official report as listed in the American Alpine Journal of Accidents for 1977 says that Jack slipped and fell to his death. That's the story we live with. And what about Eddie, the 18-year-old kid who found himself first living his dream in Yosemite Valley and a month later is fishing weed from a frozen lake? I'm going to let Eddie tell you his own story. This discussion was recorded on the central coast of California at a roadside cafe. I tried to clean up the sound a bit, and I've altered Eddie's voice, because at this point, Eddie's a well-respected member of his community. And you're going to hear how his life trajectory went in a very positive direction, thanks to the events that were tragic to some others. Here's Eddie Masoy. Some people went up there relatively early and kind of kept it quiet. And there's a lot of people that made three trips up there, you know, and they did pretty well. I only went up there once, and then... I was pretty terrified by the whole experience. I was 18, just turned 18, and I'm going great. You know, it was one thing when you're 17, you know, well, I might go to juvie for a bit, but I'm not going to prison type of thing. And and I, it, it was good for me because it made me kind of reflect on, okay, what am I going to do with my life? And so for me, it was really good because it's like, you know what? I love climbing. I want to climb. Screw this, I don't even want anything to do with drugs, you know what I mean? I might smoke a joint or something like that, but last thing I want to do is be a dealer or even associated with it. So for me, it was a really good experience for that, and I wouldn't trade it for anything, but knowing what I know now, I wouldn't do it again. I hiked in with two other people and then saw a, a friend, close friend, that was on his way out, and we missed him turn around. And uh, so the four of us were up there pretty much to ourselves. And then as we were loading our packs up, another group came in, uh, two people, three people. But there have been a lot of people there already. There are holes all over the lake. Um, I was lucky enough to, on my second hole, to find a bale. Maybe everybody felt the same way I did, but I felt like I was more terrified than anybody else. You know, it, it just was new to me. Um, and I was young. And yeah, and I'm just going, God, you know, it, back then it's the rangers against the climbers. So if you were a climber, we kind of felt secure in our own group, so to speak. So I wasn't scared of any other climbers, the other people I saw up there, but I was scared of getting caught with all that and just watching my life unfold. Well, the hard part, though, is after you have all this, it's soaking wet. It's everywhere. Everybody's giving it away to everybody else, mm -hmm. so it's worthless in Yosemite. Mm -hmm. Plus, it was going to be worthless if you didn't get it dried out quickly or it all mold. Afterwards, for me, it was pretty intense. I didn't have, we borrowed a car from John Yablonski, actually, uh, his VW. And, anyways, three of us were going to LA with the back seats completely full, yeah. reeked. 
and and the front trunk was full. We had when it, after it dried, it was like eighty pounds. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's, it was a lot of hot. And so we're going driving to LA. To friend had a friend that was supposedly just unloaded. By this point, I just wanted just to get out of it and get a little money and stuff. So I gave a lot of mine away. But uh, anyway, so we're riding down to LA and we get a flat tire right away get the spare out. It only has about 20 pounds of air in it. So we had to drive like 20 miles an hour all the way to Oakers before we could get another tire. We're in the gas station. Yeah. The guy pokes his head up and he's like, oh dude, I know what's going on. And so we get down to LA. The guy's not home. We try, try, not home. By then it's 1, 2 in the morning and it's like, yeah, we have nowhere to sleep. So we slept on the side of this main road and I slept in some bushes and I woke up like for me to hear it was a fence and it's a schoolyard there a bunch of kids playing and I'm like oh and they're all like looking out of the Jeez. fence at me and I get up stuff my sleeping bag get into the the car that we had and we take off and uh you know we go back to the friend's house and still no the friend's not there can't get a hold of him so we get this hotel room I didn't have any money but one of the people did and so he rented a hotel a suite with two rooms and we used tarps and stuff and we laid it all out this deep in two full rooms including the bed and everything and he bought a bunch of sun lamps so we were just baked in the room getting it all warm but it was like humid yeah you know it wasn't really drying out because there weren't any fans to go outside it was and it was strong smell you could smell it 50 feet away from the door right so we did that for a couple days his friend never showed up and I'm just, I remember the whole time just going, God, this is so <laughs> dangerous. Because, you know, it's one thing you got your own six pounds or whatever, but yeah. when you're affiliated with 80 pounds, yeah. I was very nervous. And so then the final straw was the maid came and he went to open the door. One of the guys was AWOL from the Army. And, um, and he showed up at the door and told her, no, we don't need anything clean, go away, blah, blah, blah. And I saw he, he had a gun with him. And I'm like, oh my God, this is so not cool. So um, by then I was really terrified. So I convinced him, let's go to Palm Springs. We can at least get out. I know the area and we can get out away from people. I don't want to be around any people of this stuff. And let's get this stuff dried and then figure out what to do. So I talked him into it. We went out there and uh, got it all dry. Then went up to Northern California. We knew somebody who, and they got rid of like a pound for me. I got the money. I grabbed the rest of mine, got a bus ticket, and separated. I realized it, and I realized at the moment I felt really stupid. I should have known better. But, you know, it was an adventure that I wouldn't trade for a moment. It shaped who I am. But in a way, it was really good because it, it scared me from that side of life. guy that got that we drove up to that I you know gave me some money for a pound that gave me the money to separate that guy got murdered in a coke deal a few years later but I think it affected some people just had bad luck afterwards you know they say it was a curse or whatever other people I think it changed their lives I think it changed all our lives forever 
some of us, I think, kind of stayed down that dark path and maybe never got out of it or had bad things happen. And, you know, and now they've moved on. You know, but it's, for me, I didn't, I didn't really want that. I, the only thing I got out of it was a little spending money. Whereas for me, it was suddenly just a giant step and I go, oh my God, I'm in the middle of it. I got to see it through, but I don't like this at all. And so that's why I say it really changed and, and kind of formulated my the rest of my life. And I knew right then and there, I'd never want to be a drug dealer. Young people face choices and challenges every day. And one poor decision can literally change your life for the better or the worse. I admire Eddie for not only making a decision that, as a young man, sent his life on a positive trajectory, but also for sitting down and talking to me about it. Both of those choices took courage. In our next episode, we'll be looking into the retaking of the crash site by the Park Service and what happens when you get arrested while carrying a 40-pound bag of weed on the Vernal Falls Trail. High Adventure Podcast is produced by Accidental Productions. Follow High Adventure on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and find us on all your favorite podcast platforms. We'll see you at the crash site. Yeah.